And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. Well, that started not where I told it to start. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, and uh, thanks for joining us. We are live from the bunker. Jason Hunt here along with all of you. I see the chat is already starting to get a little active. It is Monday, and boy, howdy, what a weekend. Uh, a couple of news items uh, coming in from the weekend. We had uh, we had the death of Greg Bear, an author, uh, Hugo and Nebula Award-winning author, we had the uh, death of Jason David Frank of the Power Rangers. And then last night, we had the death of Walt Disney Company. Uh, Bob Iger coming back in as the CEO, replacing Bob Chapek. And everybody's talking about that. And um, we're going to be talking about it tonight. Camera Pasha is going to be a guest on the H2O podcast. I know the guys over at Midnight's Edge are talking about it. Valiant Renegade had his channel up on it last night. Lots of chatter about that. But that's not what we're going to talk about here today. I want to give a shout out to everybody who is listening to this program as a podcast. We're available on a number of different platforms. Of course, we mentioned the live chat. Uh, you can always leave a comment. You can uh, uh, send us an email live from the bunker at sci-fi for me.com. I do read every comment. I do read every email. Even the spam, because i got to delete them. So anyway, there we go. All right, so... It is, you know, we talk about the we talk about the Disney thing it is almost as if we've gotten into a time loop there. And time travel is the uh, the subject of the book that we're talking about today, Find Me in the Time Before, written by Robin Stevens Pays, who is our guest today joining us uh, for the hour. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, we're happy to have you here. And this this is uh, this is an entry in a series of books. From, it's called The Edge of Yesterday, and the time travel in this is um, this is this is kind of one of those things. Where it's like, oh, we did th- we did what? Now we have to fix what? And and now we broke it even more. Is that is that what I'm seeing here? Well, we uh, have three books in the series that lead up to this one. Um, they're all standalone, though, Jason, so you can read them in any order, one at a time, all together, over years, whatever suits your fancy. So uh, take us take us through the premise of this particular book, then. Well, mm, let's go through the, the, the overall Edge of Yesterday concept first, and then we'll get into specifics about this book. Sure. So um, as a writer, when my kids, I have three kids, they're all grown now, when they were kind of preteens and I was the carpool mom listening in on the backseat conversation, you know you're invisible. That's another form of time travel. The driver is invisible when your kids and their friends are (laughs) on their way to soccer or band practice. And they would talk about everything that they were excited about or that they wanted to be or do when they grew up. They, they talk about normal things, you know, like this mean teacher who didn't invite who to the slumber party the other night. But they also talked about all of the things they wanted to be and do. So they, my, my kids and their friends were talking about being um, 
star saxophone play jazz saxophone players and star soccer players and dentists and diplomats and neurosurgeons and teachers and 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 the um and 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 really threw me because kind of in our society and this was my observation um growing up and raising kids in in this era is that we specialize you know we want our kids to play french horn in kindergarten so they can get into the best college the best high school program the best college get the meet the people get the career you know get the family whatever that's what we define as success right and listening to them it occurred to me that that really isn't a very natural way of living our lives especially as kids because if we aren't encouraging our kids to try all kinds of things when they're young when are they going to have the chance to to do that and so it set me off on a thought experiment was there ever a moment in time when people were ex ex encouraged to explore lots of different ways of being in the world and lots of interests and lots of things to do and try to be and learn and um so of course the my immediate thought was the renaissance and leonardo da vinci the renaissance genius the master of all things so my thought experiment was if a modern teen from maryland where i live were to visit leonardo da vinci or conversely if leonardo da vinci came to our world today could he even be leonardo da vinci so that that started me, you know, down this rabbit hole of well, I I don't know if I can bring Leonardo da Vinci to the present, but I could speculate on what would happen if I brought my teens to the past. <laughs> well, and and that's an interesting thought because you know you have these you have these uh, these encounters, um, and and this is this is not anything. I mean, Abraham Lincoln has shown up on Star Trek. You've got the you know. Uh, however many different historical figures in the first Bill and Ted. This this is a concept that is really, really, really old, where you have this, what if somebody from the modern era, I mean, Mark Twain did it, Connecticut Yankee and, T and King Arthur's Court. Some, some modern person goes back to some time in the past and has an encounter that's a, a life-changing, life-altering, we're going to have lessons learned type of thing. So how do you differentiate yours so that it's not just playing the trope like everybody else has done this? What makes yours what makes yours unique? How did you how did you try to twist it a little bit? Well, first of all, um, I'm glad you mentioned the antecedents of all of this. And of course, even in the present, we've got Quantum Leap. We've got Doctor Who. You know, everybody's doing it. Right, Jason? Right. Um, so how did we how did we do this differently? Well, the idea that I had was um, in time traveling to the past and trying to string together what made a Leonardo da Vinci. I then brought that forward. So bringing the spirit of the Renaissance genius to the present day, which my my protagonist Charlie Morton a Demonista, so STEM plus arts integration into STEM, comes into the world of the Renaissance, and her goal is to learn the secrets of Leonardo so she can be a modern day Renaissance girl. And when I started this this uh, book, this story, actually, 
I wrote it as a screenplay uh, because I had never written a screenplay. It was really just like, can I do this? Um, and I started it in, believe it or not, here's a little time travel, the late 1990s. Oh, wow. And because my protagonist, Charlie, is a science girl and a technology girl and a modern girl, and she's very curious, I couldn't plausibly create the time travel from 1998 that would get her to the to the past and back to the present alive. <laughs> and so I had to put it away for like 10 years. And I waited for the Higgs boson and the iPad to make it plausible that we could have this um, for her science fair, the middle school science fair, the initial books take put the Leonardo series takes place in, in when she's in middle school. Um, so for the middle school science fair, Charlie invents Leonardo da Vinci's plans for a time machine because we know he invented everything. He just didn't have the science or technology to build it. And she invents, you know, she puts together a model and there's a little romance and a kiss and whoops, she accidentally triggers the machine and ends up winning her way back 500 years across six time zones to land in an empty field at midnight under a hail of cannon fire and come face to face with Leonardo himself. And her goal while he while she's there is to learn his secrets because she wants to be she doesn't want to specialize in one thing she she likes to do it all and she wants to find out leonardo's secrets how did he do it all so she could be a modern day renaissance girl now you you talk about this being a screenplay first and and nowadays there is a lot of talk i mean we've we've run across this i don't know how many times where we'll announce uh, you know, we'll we'll be reporting the news on Saturday morning, and there's there's generally at least one movie deal that we're announcing for a book that hasn't been published yet, and it seems like that that that's the way to go. And and recently, with the Random House uh, lawsuits and everything coming out, basically saying all of our bestsellers uh, sell about twelve or fifteen copies, but we don't talk about that. And now you've got this pushback from the general audience that, you know, I don't, I don't want to read your Netflix pitch. I want to read a good comic book. I want to read a good novel. I want, you know, don't, don't do one thing with the idea of it trying to turn into something else. So when you come back to revisit this, now it's not a screenplay. It's going to be a novel. And with the STEM, uh, the STEM emphasis, besides that aspect of it with the technology part, did you find that it was easier or maybe more of a challenge in terms of getting it right with the STEM? Because over the last 10, 15 years, there's been more of a push for you know, getting, getting women and girls into science, into engineering, into computers. Um, I mean, we, just had a, we just had a news item on Saturday, uh, girls, who, girls Who Game has just established a new 501c3 with a scholarship fund to get more girls into, you know, into college to study, you know, computer programming and that kind of thing. So is it easier to integrate all of that into these stories now? And maybe, maybe you've got, because now you've got more material out there. People have been actually talking about this stuff. Yeah. Well, I, I purposely made Charlie a girl. <laughs> Um, because when I started this, and even today, Jason, I have to say, sadly, there are not enough girl strong girl protagonists. In fact, 
um, you know, we, we know the well-trod path of the hero's journey, right? We, we hear about that all the time. And um, Joseph Campbell's work is the basis of most Hollywood adventure right. movies these days. Um, I have taken that a step beyond because I'm interested in the heroine's journey or what I call the shiro's journey, um, which is not at all a girl following a boy's path. It is a girl following her own path, but also being true to herself. It's a much more interior, internal kind of thing. So maybe not the Avengers that we would recognize on screen necessarily. Right. Although there is some of that going out and, you know, and finding your, your uh, fighting the dragon, coming home the, the hero or heroine. But there's also this internal push-pull um, that I think is much more emotional, emotionally driven and truer in my experience, being the mom of daughters and working with lots of girls in my, my I, I run internship programs and workshops and I, I deal a lot with um, um, teen girls to help them tell their stories. And what I find is it's truer to their version, especially this Gen Z, which we could talk about more if you want, that has been so amazing, but so deeply traumatized by everything that has gone on in our world. Um, that it's very true to their life experience that they are into um, expressing their emotions in a much um, more passionate way than perhaps my generation, certainly. And, and I don't know how, how, what generation you are, but, but certainly Gen X um, and even the millennials to some extent. So it is really interesting to me to take this adventure story and make it make a strong girl protagonist um, who's into STEM and STEAM to inspire this generation of girls to say, you know what, you can dream big and you can do it. It may not look like the hero's journey. It may not look like what you have seen on in books and movies growing up, but that is okay because that's where we're headed. And I think it makes us into whole people um, in a much more um, authentic way. Now, when you say the Shiro's journey, <clears throat> there are going to be people that are going to hear that and they're going to automatically jump to the conclusion that this is a, a, a feminist manifesto type of story. Now, you're shaking your head, but let me ask you this question. Is there, because that, that modern, modern era literature, there's been this divide between, you know, the how do I ask this? Because, you know, we've seen with the Sad Puppies movement, the, the essentially the implosion of the Hugo Awards. There's been this back and forth debate about how important it is to have story over message. Now, you've got a goal here to encourage the, the interest in STEM to get girls interested in this kind of thing. Did you ever find yourself, as you're working on this, kind of skating that line to try to find your balance? And we got to tell a good story first. The message is kind of in there underneath. Or is it, you know, hitch over the head with a two by four? This is oh. this is what you must think. I mean, I, it doesn't sound like you did that, but no, no. 
Um, in fact, I, I was just kind of noodling on this very idea. So it's funny you bring it up, Jason, before we got on and, and um, I'll look at my notes because I just wrote this down. Um, what I what I wrote as just a note to myself as I'm starting the next adventure, I'm starting book five, working on research for that. Um, in divisive and polarized times, science fiction gives us an opportunity to dream beyond today and to share our dreams in a way that doesn't take sides. It's a way to dream life forwards. So um, my goal is never to hit anyone over the head with anything. <laughs> um, I do call this stealth learning in that because it starts with Leonardo and then other polymaths in the vein of Leonardo. I don't like the word renaissance. I don't like the word genius because we think of that as someone with an exceptional IQ and I don't think that's really what it is. It's kind of that that genie on your shoulder, mm -hmm, you know, sure. um, who's whispering to you, you can do this or why don't you try that? It's your inspiration, your intuition. Um, and we need to be more in touch with that. But I call it stealth learning because in the books, I don't shy away from the science or the math or the technology or the language or the art or, you know, all of those things that made, you know, we'll just say Leonardo is the most famous example of this that brought together that, that um, polymath um, to our world and really advanced, you know, Leonardo was, of course, everyone knows he was an artist and a sculptor, but he was a musician, he was a geologist, he was an anatomist, he was an impresario, he put on shows at the court of Milan and did all these amazing stagecraft and uh, he was a chef. <laughs> um, he, he truly did it all and um, that's what made him so intriguing to me. So I, I tried to bring elements of actual um, learning, stealth learning, I call it into the books um, in a way that would, I hope, get kids curious to learn more. And in fact, I was talking to someone just last week who read the new book, Find Me in the Time Before, which is another polymath we can get into who this next obsession of Charlie's is. Um, who said, I had to look that person up because I didn't know they were if they were real or not. And so um, you know, this this new book takes place not in the Renaissance, but in the Enlightenment, and it's a whole new character, and I will say more about that if you would like, or we can get into it later, but um, we, we keep it real, and we keep the learning in there, and you can either read it as a fun story, or you can read it as, oh my gosh, I didn't know that, maybe I should look it up. Right. Now you mentioned influences. You mentioned different uh, different uh, aspects of this. We do have one one question here in the chat from Dave, asking about uh, authors or book titles that were influencing you uh, when you were crafting all of this. So, do you have uh, particular uh, particular authors that you look to as because you th these are your first books, right? This is the first the first work that you've done. You're an edu you were an educator. Uh, a science writer, so so this is kind of we're dipping into the pool, as it were. Who who did you look to as far as what style of writing that you wanted to to maybe pull from? Yeah, um, I have a lot of influences. Of course, um, Connecticut Yankee Mark Twain is you know just the classic in the field, but also I just love Mark Twain and I love the humor in Twain. Um, I, I, we try to capture some of that in Charlie's voice and with her and her friends, in the, both in the present day and in the 
absurd situation she finds herself in in the past. Um, I would even go back to A Wrinkle in Time as my first inspiration in sci-fi. I read a lot of Heinlein, a lot of Asimov. Um, so all of the classics of science fiction, I haven't gotten in so much to the modern day um, purveyors of science fiction. But I also read because these are historical, like you could also call them not just sci-fi, but historical fiction. So in the historical fiction vein, I would say my first inspiration there would be like Johnny Tremaine, which I read in elementary school. Um, but I'm reading now uh, Lady of, I, I think it's called Lady of the Lake, which is a retelling of the Arthurian legend right, right. Through, the, through the eyes of the women, another classic, but it does take on the heroine's journey in a way that I don't think hits you over the head, but is just a different take on what life would have been like in the Middle Ages um, for, um, for whether Arthur is a fictional person or a composite or was a real king. Um, what, he did not come alone. It wasn't just him who came up. He had a lot of people around him besides the, his companions, his knights of the round table, including, of course, Guinevere, but the Lady of Avalon, the Lady of the Lake, his mother. Um, and we don't often hear their stories. So um, so right now I'm deep into that um, uh, that that fictional account. And it's really inspiring to me um, to kind of keep moving forward. Now, when when you're conceiving the idea for these books, were you were you always seeing it as a series or was it just plans for the one book? And then, oh, hey, I've got this idea for another one. And, and it just kind of grew from there. Well, I mean, it was a movie first. <laughs> so put out the good word. I've got the screenplay. I did finish it. <laughs> got a treatment. Um, but but honestly, when um, now that Charlie knows how to time travel, there's nothing to keep her in Maryland anymore right. in high school. You know, she has the not only the world, but the past and the, maybe even the future at her fingertips. And um, bending time and experiencing different worlds and creating them yourself, I think is the best kind of learning. It steeps you deep into world building, you know, and we know how, how um, immersive that is. You, you talked a little in your opening about VR. Um, and uh, I, I think we, we don't have VR in the sense yet that you could step into Charlie's um, experience or her adventure with Leonardo or with this these subsequent adventures she's she's just launched off on um but we can imagine it and to me the imagination is really the most important skill the most important tool that we can give everyone to survive and thrive in an uncertain world that we're living in now uh you also mentioned having to set aside this thing in order to make room you know for the science to evolve how much research did you have to do for the time travel aspect of it? Because there are a lot of different theories on how time travel works. There's a lot of different things where, you know, I mean, we even saw it in the Avengers movie. There are rules, you know, you've got, you know, back to the future rules or Doctor Who rules or, you know, you've got to figure out your parameters because as soon as you break your own rule, then you know there's somebody out there that's going to call you out on it and say, "Hey, wait a minute, no. Back in this book, you said it all, it worked this way." So I'm I am imagining that you've probably got a spreadsheet, a bunch of notebooks somewhere that says, "All right, this is how the time travel works in this in this universe." 
How much work did that take? Oh my gosh, incredible, really. Because the rules of time travel changed from when I started this in 1997 to you know when I finished writing the screenplay in 2011 or 2012, and even today. So um, I do keep copious notes, um, and uh, I have a Bible <laughs> that shows me how it was done. But because Charlie is aging and the years are changing even as the adventures go forward um, i can incorporate advances in time travel without violating the past mechanisms that i've established of physics and and um, quantum physics and quantum mechanics and all of that but i've done tremendous amount of research into that i got stuck actually when i was finishing the screenplay initially because to, of course, you know, we're all familiar with paradox and going back in time. And Charlie is aware of that, too. She wants to make sure she's not changing her future or anyone else's as much as possible. And so how do you come back to the present day and not have changed the timeline of history as we know it? And so that took a lot of doing. And I was working this out with a, in a workshop, a screenwriting workshop. Uh, at the time, and my teacher, who is a screenwriter himself, said, um, well, you might need to bring her back before she left. And so that is really the primary tool that I've been using consistently throughout. It it doesn't, it's not foolproof, let sure. us say, because um, little ripples can have a big, big effect downstream. Well, and that calls to mind uh, the end of, of Back to the Future, where Marty comes back before he left. And a lot of people have looked at that and have analyzed it and just really dug into the fact that now there are two Marty McFlys. And so you have this duplication effect where at some point you're probably going to have a, a, a book where you can have multiple Charlies all meet each other and say, hang on. Now we have a problem. Is yeah. is that a concern at any point? Because yeah. because you're basically <laughs> duplicating your protagonist here. Yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because the, <laughs> this is the new book, of course, which you you showed in the beginning, and it it does happen almost yeah. in this book. So um, so I'll, I'll just set this book up a little bit. Charlie has met Leonardo da Vinci and learned from one of her superheroes of history, and so now she has her sights set on meeting all of these people historically who she's identified as her inspiration. And um, in science class, actually, she learns about someone who translated in, in the 1700s, the 18th century, who translated Newton into French. In an addition, they still use today original translation and improved on Newton's science, who laid the foundation for relativity two centuries before Einstein, who dueled at the court of Versailles, the court of Louis XV, and beat the dual master and won, gambled and won money to afford textbooks and tutors, who was the consort of Voltaire, the mother of four, and today nobody knows her name. And I had the great honor of visiting. Her name is Emily, the Marquise du Chatelet. She was the consort of Voltaire. They were science fair partners, if you will, back in the 1730s. Um, uh, they lived in her husband's chateau. <laughs> in the Champagne region of France um, while he was off fighting wars. And uh, he would come back. They built a little theater at the top. I've been visited this uh, amazing castle. 
and um, they would put on Voltaire's plays and operas. And when he, when her husband was back in town, he would join them in the theatricals, and they attracted people from all over Europe. All the uh, it was a salon. They attracted you know notables from all over Europe. So she was known in her age in her time, um, but her legacy was lost. She died in childbirth with her fourth child and um, was interred because it was neither her husband's nor Voltaire's. And the Catholic Church at that time was not too keen on this idea. Sure, She's buried in a, in a beautiful church in a town called Luneville, which is in Lorraine in Eastern France. Um, and she's interred in a stone in the ground and people walk over her every Sunday on their way to mass. And there's no name, there's no identification on the tomb mm. at all. So even today, she, where she's buried, people don't know of her, except as the consort of Voltaire. But she was a brilliant woman. And of course, Charlie hears of her in science class and is determined, I'm going to resurrect her legacy. Not only am I going to meet this woman and learn from her, but I'm going to re resurrect her legacy for today. I just set that up by way of saying, in answer to, I hope in answer to your question, that she first time travels to um, meet this woman, Emily du Chatelet, and she time travel is not perfect yet, her, her mechanisms, and she ends up meeting Emily, uh, who is around her age, a teenager. And this is a pre-serious scientist, Emily du Chatelet, and uh, she's into boys and dresses and snuff box, collecting snuff boxes and dueling and gambling. and. This is not at all the Charlie that Emily, the Emily that Charlie wants to meet. And so she realizes that she's going to have to course correct. And to do that, she has to come home first to reset the time parameters and go to the 1736 Emily du Chatelet, who was this brilliant luminary of the Enlightenment. Right. And she overshoots accidentally. <laughs> so spoiler alert, she leaves in 2019, she comes back in 2020, and oops, there's a pandemic going on. <laughs> All right, well, we will get into that a little bit further right after the break. We will uh, we will continue our chat here. Uh, hang, hang on, we're, we're, we'll be right back. You're listening to Sci-Fi For Me Radio, where all of us are madmen in a box. It's like, okay, hold on. You've got somebody, and all he does is put on some glasses and slicks back his hair, and nobody knows who he is. Nobody recognizes him. It's it's it's, it's like that that uh, that scene in, in the Green Lantern movie where she looks at him and it's like, how? You know, it's like you just put on a mask and you expect me not to recognize you. The H two O podcast Monday night at eight only on Sci Fi for Me TV. Good morning, Multiverse, Saturday morning at 11, 10 Central, only on Sci-Fi For Me TV. Back live from the bunker, there you can see a couple of our... Tardises, Tardi, Tardis, Tardisi, what? I don't know. What's the plural of Tardises? I'm not sure. We are talking with Robin Stevens-Pays, who is the author of uh, the new book, Find Me in the Time Before. It is the latest entry 
in the Edge of Yesterday series, and I want to I want to read the back uh, the back cover here. Um, okay, this is this is from the from the uh, from the book Time Travel. Uh, I'm gonna be my old man self here. Time travel is nothing if not unpredictable. An accidental jump to the wrong year lands Charlie in prison at the Bastille. When she tries to get home, she overshoots and ends up in a future where face masks and sweatpants are fashion-forward and home has become its own prison. Can Charlie and her leap-time co-conspirator slash BF Billy fix their wrong turns and reverse time before a modern-day virus threatens to wipe out knowledge on which the very future of humanity hinges? Um, that's That sounds pretty heavy. <laughs> so, okay... It seems like there are a lot of people who uh, we, we're we're pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, and it's almost as if a number of stories are you know we're either gonna we're either gonna ignore it or we're going to incorporate it, and everything's gonna be in there. I mean, it wasn't even a month into this whole thing before we started getting zombie zombie pandemic movies, you know, and you know, B, B movie stuff. How much of that, when you're writing this, are you taking into account? Well, yes, I'm going to I'm going to factor in what's really happening here, or is this just was this a coincidence? Did you have this planned from the get go, or or this is something that's like okay, I have to acknowledge this because this is a thing that's happened. Well, first, let me say that I have an outline that I start with for my um, all these books. And um, I try to be faithful to that outline. And it turns out Charlie has different ideas. So my protagonist, <laughs> she rules the roost. And um, she was the one who decided we should have not just one time travel in this book, um, but four. <laughs> <laughs> making it extremely more challenging for me as the author to keep all of these plots in place, the, the present in 2019, in 2020, in 1724, and 1736, and all the characters and all of their interactions and relationships. Um, well, she didn't really care if it made me crazy, but <laughs> there you have it. So, um, no, initially I was there was one time travel to... 1736 uh, France, um, when Emily and Voltaire were doing, have the biggest science laboratory, home science laboratory, probably in all of Europe, um, that they imported from Paris and London, um, and the biggest library, actually, I think it was bigger than the Library of Congress, um, or, mm -hmm. you know, Jefferson's library at the time, right. uh, on this side of the Atlantic. But um, there, it was a pretty simple thing to go back to one time and come to back home to her present, which was then 2019. And she just really wasn't buying it. She kept fighting me the whole way. And we can talk about that if you want. But um, it was not until I gave in and said, okay, okay, Charlie, you win, <laughs> that we could really go forward with this book. And so, um, again, these books are not things that I as an author can turn around, you know, I, someone was asking me, how long does it take you to write these about nine months? And I'm like, I wish, <laughs> right. um, because first of all, I have to do deep research into the time periods where Charlie's traveling. And second of all, I, um, she's a science girl. She wants this to be true as possible, real as possible. So 
I, I try to make these very evidence-based to the extent I can in science fiction. Um, and that's my background as a science writer anyway. So um, so I, I can't shortchange that process. And then in this case, I had the really good fortune of traveling to, and, and as I say, stalking Emily du Chatelet through France, um, which really gave it a lot more authenticity, I think, and really helped me um, place this in both the present, which I'm pretty familiar with, <laughs> but uh, a kind of 200 and something year old past um, and what that world would have looked like because the region of France where Emily and her husband and Voltaire and all of their Salonistas came to visit um, really looks quite similar today to the way it would have looked then. And of course, Versailles, I visited Versailles to see where she and that, you know, so all of the, in Europe, all of that history is very present. Right. Uh, which really allowed me to um, to dive deep and to recreate that world. And there are images in the, in all of my books, and that's on purpose. I've I've done that also because um, if I can't if I can't get the movie made today, <laughs> at least I can show what these actual real people and their real situations were like, and inspire young people again to get curious and dig deeper. Now, have have there been any conversations about adapting these uh, for film or television yet? Or well, yes, um, there there have been around the fringes. I I cannot say I have treat a treatment. I have obviously the screenplay for the Leonardo uh, adventure. Um, I I can't say that I've gotten very far in those conversations yet. But I am um, going to be in New York uh, next month. I hope to kind of revive one of those conversations then and you know i'm i'm uh i've got nibbles but no bites yet let's say right so what is next in charlie's adventures or do you have that mapped out you've got a plan in place i do i do so um i was um i'm originally from i'm in maryland now i was originally from cincinnati ohio and I visited Cincinnati a few years ago um, for personal reasons. My family had a history with Hebrew Union College, which is the Reformed Jewish Rabbinical uh, uh, Institute in Cincinnati. And um, so I went to visit because uh, I hadn't I hadn't been there in a long time and I wanted to to kind of look around and see. Um, some of my friends and some of the things that my family had been involved in over the years. And um, I was visited the archives there and the archivist gave me a packet of papers. In fact, I might have them here. Um, and she said, I thought you, you're a writer. I thought you might be interested in this. And I'm like, okay, I don't know what they are. And I looked inside the folder and they were a series of letters from, from a woman uh, an author and anthropologist from the 20th century named Zora Neale Hurston. I don't know if most people will be familiar with Zora. She was a black woman who um, broke a lot of barriers. She was part of the Harlem Renaissance. So okay. a little bit of a clue there, the jazz age in New York. She came to New York at the at the um, invitation, well, she came to New York because she was in college at Howard University here in DC, and she won a, a writing contest. And there was a banquet in New York to celebrate that that win. 
And there was a woman there who was the founder of Barnard College. Uh, her name is Annie Nathan Meyer. And um, Annie was so impressed with Zora Neale Hurston that she who was, you know, young at the time, not quite as young as she made it seem. However, that's another story. <laughs> Um, um, but she she raised scholarship funds to bring Zora to Barnard College as the first black student at Barnard. And they had a very interesting relationship. So the packet of letters that I have are Zora's letters in response to this woman, Annie Nathan Meyer's letters. I'm still trying to track down Annie Nathan Meyer's letters right. in which Zora is obviously responding to this patron of hers asking her for writing advice. So it's the patron asking the student for advice on writing good fiction. And so that was intriguing to me. But what was more intriguing and somewhat shocking and is really causing me some palpitations, Jason, I have to say, as I approach writing this, is the language Zora used in her letters um, for herself, which was very self-deprecating and self-effacing. Um, and language that I won't, I won't say <laughs> out loud, right. um, but w I wondered, is that the way it was in the 1920s with the relations between a, a white patron, a white woman and a black woman, Sure. Um, or was this Zora? And so that has kind of sent me on a quest to find out the answer to that question. And then Charlie, of course, got a hold of this being the Harlem Renaissance and the Jazz Age and now she is uh, in this book will be uh, looking at colleges and she after her Leonardo trip, she decided she wanted to be a forensic anthropologist. That was the inspiration she got from Leonardo. Okay. Um, and it turns out that Zora, of course, was an anthropologist um, of the South, of the Black South. And um, so now Charlie wants to meet Zora Neale Hurston and find out what this whole Harlem Renaissance was about because now she's been to the real Renaissance, right? The original. Right. <laughs> How did the Harlem Renaissance match up or not? And what was New York like a hundred years ago? So that's 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 that launch. That, yeah, that's interesting to 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 have that question as to whether or not you've got somebody behaving individually or culturally, uh, with you know, in in the context of the time. That also kind of raises the, you know, not necessarily a red flag, but in this day and age where anybody can be in, uh, offended by anything that anybody does at any time, anywhere, how do you approach that? Because if you're going to be historically accurate, then you're going to tell a certain type of story in a certain type of way. However... You're white. You're not black. You're not down for the struggle. And there's going to be all sorts of people that are come at, you know, are going to come after you about that. You know, the whole, well, you can't write this kind of story because you're not that kind of person. And and it 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 harkens back to the to the debate that we were talking about earlier with with what happened with the Hugos, where you get story over message, message over story. Do you even have a right? to tell that story and all that. Are you concerned about any of that at all? Terrified. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thanks for just making my day, Jason. <laughs> well, you um, know, I, I'm of the opinion uh, and, and I'm, I'm 52. So I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not, 
too seasoned to be. I'm I'm cynical because of everything that I've that I've gone through. I'm old enough to remember certain things certain ways. But I've always been one of these people who looked at things like what Dr. Dr. King says, you know, not by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. And, and if we are to take that to heart, all of this identity politics stuff should go by the wayside, where it's not. You have t- so many people that are focused on this stuff. But I think it's important for people of, of all creeds and colors to sit there and say— this is what Dr. King said. This is how we should be doing this. I'm not going to t- I'm not going to accept your premise that I'm not allowed to tell this kind of story. We need more people standing up and say, I'm going to tell this story. I'm going to tell the story as best I can. If you don't like it, fine. If you do like it, fine. And not worry so much about what Twitter is going to say. Although now that Elon's in charge, we may not have to worry about much about what Twitter has to say. But, you know, that social that social media aspect has people so terrified, like you're talking about. I, I got to I got to put my apostrophe in the right place. You know, it's it's that kind of of, you know, fixation that I think drives us to distraction. We don't get really we don't get a whole lot of real progress made. Right, right. Well, it's a double whammy because I also have to write it in in a way that's suitable for um, teen-aged audience, you know. Right. And they have their own sensitivities. And, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about this Gen Z um, generation and um, how traumatized they've been by pandemic and Black Lives Matter and, you know, war, all the things that we are living through. Um, And I am concerned about it. I... Talk to um, there's a um, a, a a black um, um, uh, writer named Jason Wise or the Jason Wise comics. I don't know if you're familiar with them. I'm not. He, he writes he writes a superhero. He's actually a Baltimore guy, but he's he's making his way into the um, the the big universe at Marvel, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, he writes a zero superhero novel, black novel. Um, and deals with Afrofuturism and all of these other concepts that I'm still learning about. And I asked him about it. Um, I have a summer internship program, and I he was gracious enough to come and talk to my summer interns. And I, I took the opportunity to say, you know, what do you think? I am a white woman trying to tackle this very, she's a very complicated woman anyway. Right. Um, for anyone to grapple with. And um, he said, well, if you're not going to write it, who is? <laughs> It's a good point. So, so that gave me some confidence. And then the other thing that I'm doing is I'm going out for grant funding to bring on somebody who is either a specialist in in Zora Neale Hurston or the Harlem Renaissance, and I'm I'm trying to find that person to see if there is um, a way to balance out any biases or any blind spots that I might bring to the story. Um, and be sensitive to the topic. I'm wondering if you could if you could have somebody from the college uh, that might be might be a, a viable candidate for that. But the other the other part of that too, though, you've got to you've got to do this. I mean, it's a fine line. Um, you have to be careful not to hamstring yourself as well. So, I mean, you're you're kind of 
well, do I do this or do I do that? I'm going to get into trouble either way. So, I mean, it's it's right. just going to be one of those things where you just dive in and do it, right? Right. right. Um, well, again, Charlie calls the shots. And so even having an advisor who's going to help me be sensitive to some of the cultural issues, I don't want to do that to the extreme so that I am afraid to say anything. Right. Um, uh, so, and, and Charlie keeps me honest. She's going to call the shots ultimately. Um, so it, it is a little scary, I have to say, but I am determined to tackle it and I will do it in the best way I possibly can. And that's all I can guarantee. <laughs> that's all anybody can do these days, right? Yeah. So when, when you run across stuff like this, historical material, is there ever an urge? Because now, now you're actually having to deal with the filter of the modern, the modern sensibilities and whatnot. Is, has there ever been? Has there been material that you've run across and you think, "Oh, this is really interesting. I can't do anything with it. I, I you have to set it aside, or you you put it in the pile for later. It's not going to fit this story. Do you have the the cast aside pile that that you're going to pull from later?" Yeah, I have I have outtakes um, from from each of the books. Um, it's hard to kill your babies, right? Sure. <laughs> kill your darlings. Yep. Um, but in the interest of good storytelling, sometimes you have to do that. Uh, there there are things that I may or may not come back to, but I wanted to preserve because they are rich in and of themselves, and I didn't want to completely discard them. So yeah, it's a good question. I um I don't know what will happen with those, but but they are there for the rediscovery at some point. Now, is there a potential for perhaps some of this stuff making their way into an anthology? If they're not fully fleshed out stories that maybe, maybe you do a collection of short stories and some also. Great idea. I, I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, that's a, that's a possibility. I, I have to say I am also a devotee of Outlander and Diana Gabaldon's uh, series, sure, um, right. which I refused to read until after I'd finished the Leonardo series of books, um, <laughs> but now I'm passionate about <laughs> um, because I didn't want to be influenced by her time travel, right? You know, right. Conventions. So um, she has written a series of anthologies and some spin-offs from some of her characters because she thought they were interesting enough to take deeper. And I sort of have in the back of my mind there might be a spin-off with. Um, with Charlie's mother, who may may also be a time traveler. Charlie doesn't know that, so don't tell her. Um, and there's a character from the 15th century or maybe the 32nd century, we're not sure, <laughs> um, who has who's kind of a magical catalyst um, in, in the stories and who has a younger sister who Charlie meets in the Renaissance with Leonardo. Um, and this this girl's eight, and she's eight years old in that in that series in that adventure. And she uh, her name is Carolina, and Carolina becomes a mini me of Charlie. She wants to be like Charlie when she grows up. Um, and she may have a spinoff series of her own. She's a very intriguing character. Also, that might be for younger audiences. You know, for 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 um, for children's. Right. at some point hey, you're mentioning magic are are we are we going are you planning or or maybe circumstances are are such and taking you away from 
hard science, medium-ish science into magic and supernatural? Are we going to go that far or? Well, this, this, this gets into this new book. So um, one of the amazing things that Zora Neale Hurston did in real life is she, um, um, she went to the West Indies, she went to Jamaica and Haiti, where she did ethnographies, where she, she actually got into voodoo and black mm. magic. And that was part of her anthropology. Um, of course, um, we're going to have to examine some of that in the new book because that's what she did and who she was and what she was about. Yeah. And so I don't know how far I will get into that for this, although I, I have a feeling that it has to go there. Um, you know, where, where Leonardo, you know, he was pre-science in a way because science as a separate field did not exist in the Renaissance. Emily was a metaphysician. So she was into physics as it was understood in the day, which included philosophy and some um, speculation, let's say, right. about the world that we have since disproven. So, um, so, but it was much, both of those are much more grounded in actual hard science physics, um, quantum physics, than uh, this new book will be. So it is taking us out of the realm of hard science into the humanities more, I guess. Okay. Um, but also into the realm of storytelling and magic. And I don't know how that's going to show up yet, but I don't think I can. I, I, I can't not talk about it. So sure. Well, now, yeah. besides the uh, this this series with Charlie, the Edge of Yesterday series, what else do you have in your wheelhouse? Are you working on anything else at this point? Yeah, so I have a I have another uh, manuscript of hundred pages that I put away. <laughs> um, that's it's uh, I I don't know if you would call it it's regular fiction, not science fiction. I don't know if you would call it women's fiction or I I don't know <laughs> uh, identity <laughs> women's middle aged identity fiction, not autobiographical. Thank you, but. <laughs> Um, that I would like to to dust off when I'm done with the Zora book and see see where that can go and um, um, and, and then the the there may be this future adventure that doesn't focus on Charlie but her mother um, okay and so that might be kind of a combination of uh, of modern day fiction with uh, historical elements shall we say to it sounds interesting. Well, I am I am looking forward to reading this. Now you're you're telling me that I don't have to necessarily have read any of the others, but I could read this one and it's standalone enough that I can absolutely get what's going standalone. on. Standalone. Right. Yeah. All yeah. right. So this is on the pile <clears throat> of things to read and, and get reviews out. Uh, you can find Robin in various different places online. Her website, edgeofyesterday.com. Uh, you also you can find her on Twitter and on Facebook and on Instagram and on TikTok. <clears throat> We're not on TikTok. <laughs> Robin, thanks very much for being here. We really do appreciate it. And we'll definitely have you back when the, when the next book uh, hits. And, and who knows? Maybe we'll have a conversation about world building at some time. And, oh, and that'd, do be that. that'd be great. I would fun. love it. 
All right. So that's going to do it for us today, folks. Thanks very much for being here. Uh, good to have all of you in the chat. And uh, if you are here in replay, uh, go ahead and leave a comment. Make sure you get the thumbs up and do all the things you got to do in order for the algorithm to be nice to us. And uh, speaking of social media, you can find us on all the different platforms, multiple platforms, the video platforms, Odyssey, Rumble. You want to make sure that you connect with us over there as well. And the rest of the week, I'm not exactly sure how we're going to do what we're going to do because we've got the Thanksgiving weekend coming up. We're not going to have a ranker pit tomorrow night. But tonight on the H2O podcast, we're going to be talking about this Bob Iger thing. Cameron Pasha will be our guest, uh, which is not, we don't, I don't think we've ever had a guest on that show. So we're going to have a guest on the show tonight. That's at uh, 9 p.m. Eastern. So join us for that. <sighs> Busy week. So uh, we will, we will do that and uh, we'll see what happens. Everybody's talking about the Iger thing. So we'll, we'll talk about the Iger thing. That's it, folks. Thanks very much for being here. Remember, there are four lights. Copyright 2022 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media. You're listening to Sci-Fi For Me Radio. 